0: Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time that we get to explore your word. Uh, Lord, as we read your word today, as we explore it together, we pray that your spirit would bring bring it to light, bring it to life, that we would see in your word what you intended for us to see, that we'd understand and run with it. Lord, we thank you for Luke 22. We thank you for what we've seen of you in the life of Jesus. We thank you for what we've discovered of you, your character just falling off the page. We pray that, Lord, as we we look at Luke 22 today, that we would stay uh, tuned in and and eager, again, to receive all that you have for us. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so what ends up being the last meal of Jesus' life has become the most important meal in the lives of those who follow him. Filled with talk of betrayal, an argument about greatness, and even denying Jesus, it's one of the most dramatic mealtime conversations that you'll ever hear. Now, in the midst of the drama, Jesus talks about something new and beautiful. It's something we're all meant to remember. But what does Jesus' last meal have to do with us? And why have uh, his followers celebrated it ever since? Let's look at Luke 22. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him, Jesus, to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? Which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten saying this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the son of man goes as it has been determined but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter, who was also called Simon, said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I'll tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. And likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you, I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It's enough. Okay. Three things. I pray that we see here this morning. We're going to walk through the story. We see betrayal, the secret plot to kill Jesus. We see celebration, the most anticipated meal of Jesus' life. And we see fulfillment, the way this will all go down. Now first, betrayal, the secret plot to kill Jesus. Here we are. This is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is also called the Passover. Passover. Luke takes the Passover, which was a one-day celebration in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is seven days, and puts them together. The feast starts with the Passover celebration, the Passover meal. The Passover is that celebration commemorating the exodus of Israel out of Egypt. It's a celebration of freedom. It's a celebration of liberation and deliverance. If, if you remember, if you know the story, and even if you don't, hundreds of years earlier... God delivered Israel, the nation of Israel, from Egyptian slavery. God brought judgment on Egypt and deliverance to Israel through a series of plagues. You can read this in the book of Exodus. And the last plague was the death of every firstborn. And so Israel was instructed to kill a lamb, to roast it in a particular way, and to eat it, and to take its blood, and to put it on the doorposts of their home. And to hide within that home, behind the doorpost, which had the blood. And when the angel passed through, the angel would pass over their home. And so, those who hid within their homes, hid behind the blood, were safe, were delivered. But those who did not, received judgment for every firstborn. After that plague, Egypt let Israel go. The Pharaoh just... Was done. It was like, get out of here. From that day forward, Israel would celebrate the Passover, the passing over of that angel, keeping them safe because of the blood, but bringing judgment on their enemies. And so here we are. The Passover is being celebrated or prepared for, and we're in the city of Jerusalem. And it would have been jam-packed with pilgrims who had made their way to Jerusalem to celebrate this seven-day feast, this seven-day celebration, this Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Passover. So you have the, the, the chief priests and the scribes. They want Jesus dead but are afraid of the great crowds that are beginning to gather around Jesus and, and agree with his teachings. And so then we're told that the Satan, we could call him the adversary, the accuser, the tempter, He enters Judas. Judas is one of the 12 disciples. We might think, wait, what? He entered Judas? What's going on here? Now, Judas, from the start, was a bit sketchy. He's filled with unbelief. He's called a devil. He is a thief. He would help himself to the money bag. He was the keeper of the money and would kind of help himself to it. We can learn all about that in the Gospel of John. Was Judas disillusioned? Was he angry? Was he looking out for his own gain and self-interest? I think the answer is yes. And so here's what went down. He made his own willful decision, and the Satan then enters and influences what happens next. And so we have this this huddle, this, this powwow of the powers of evil that are set to stop Jesus, and they think that killing him will stop his mission. Religious leaders are thrilled that Judas came forward. The Satan is involved. Judas is giving cash. The secret plot to kill Jesus is set in motion. It's just a matter of time now. Betrayal. Number two, celebration. The most anticipated meal of Jesus' life. Verses 7 through 13 is all about preparation. Preparation for the Passover meal. They're getting ready. Jesus sends Peter and John ahead. And is this an example of of Jesus uh, doing some pre arrangements? He knew. He says, "When you meet a guy with water on his uh, a jug of water on his head, and you can ask him about his master, who has, or the guy who owns a place." Or is this prophetic knowledge? I think this is prophetic knowledge. That Jesus knew. And he instructed his his guys, the disciples find the space. It's a large, furnished upper room. They could reserve it. They could rent it. Uh, they had to then go on to purchase the lamb and make sure that the lamb was roasted the right way and prepared the right way. They had to get the bitter herbs, which represented the bitterness of bondage uh, to slavery in Egypt. They had to go get the unleavened bread and, of course, the wine. All of these things Uh, would help them to celebrate the Passover in the way it was supposed to be celebrated. It's a lot like you preparing for Thanksgiving. I mean, you know what to get. You go get the turkey, the fixings, um, the dessert, the gravy. These guys, they knew what to get. This is the meal that Jesus said he earnestly desired to eat with them before he suffered. He knew he was going to suffer. He earnestly desired to eat it with them. There was a longing in his heart to do this, to have this meal with them. Why? He knew everything has been leading up to this meal. Now, the flow of Passover would have, been, uh, would have been this way. There's an opening prayer, and there is a first cup of wine and a dish of bitter herbs and sauce. And, and so there are four cups of wine. Uh, and after that first cup, they would tell the story of Israel's deliverance. A child would ask the head of the house, well, what makes this night any different from all the other nights? And then they would launch into the story of Israel's deliverance. Of course they would. That's what this Passover celebration is all about. It's a celebratory time. It's not a somber time. It's, it's about celebrating God's faithful, uh, faithfulness in liber- liberating them from bondage to Egypt. And so they would recount God's God's. Uh, God's deliverance. You can read about it in particular in Exodus chapter 12. I encourage you to do so. Then they would sing a psalm and have another cup of wine shared. And then they'd give thanks for the food and have that main course, more prayer and a third cup. And then they would sing uh, out of Psalm 114 to 118. Uh, You know the psalms are the songbook of Israel, uh, so naturally they're singing from their hymn book. And then they'd share that fourth cup of wine. It's a time of celebration. So here we are, and we could say we're invited. <laughs> we're, we're with Jesus and his disciples in that upper room as they celebrate Passover. And here we're given these little, these little uh, slices of what that night was like. We get a little insight into that night. And in verse 16, Jesus says that he won't eat this Passover again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Well, what does that mean? Now, what's he talking about? He goes on to reiterate that. He says he will not drink of it again until the kingdom of God comes. Well, wait a minute. Hasn't the kingdom of God come in Jesus? Isn't he the king of the kingdom that he's been proclaiming? And as he's been demonstrating his power over sickness and death and the demonic realm and his authority over sin? Yes. But Jesus also looked forward to what would be ultimately uh, fully accomplished and was anticipated. What would be. You see... The kingdom is an already not yet reality. There are aspects of the kingdom that Jesus was ushering in by his very presence and his ministry. But there are as- other aspects of the kingdom that would be fully manifested uh, when he, when he uh, returns. And, and when, well, he talks about this great messianic banquet when sin is completely eradicated, every tear wiped from our eyes, when we're made new. So there is this anticipation of what will be. A fulfillment it's an already not yet kingdom and and it makes sense then when we pray your kingdom come jesus taught us to pray your kingdom come your will be done so when we pray that way we're saying lord let your reign and rule that is evident in jesus be manifested in my life your kingdom come your will be done it could look like a lot of things Help me to to, to say no to sin and yes to godliness. Lord, let your kingdom come in the life of my my friend who doesn't believe in you yet. Help them to see your authority and your power. Let your kingdom come in their life. His rule and his reign evident. And eventually, fully manifested at the return of Jesus at this great banquet. Okay. We get a little idea of what Jesus is talking about. He goes on. He took bread, he broke it. They're celebrating Passover now, remember. And this is what he says in verse 19. This is my body. Hit the pause button, somebody. Jesus is going off script. It's Passover, right? Yeah. Were the disciples tracking? What were they thinking when they heard Jesus say, this is my body? And he says, it's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Hold up. We're remembering God's mighty deliverance out of uh, Israel, out of Egypt. Then he took the cup. Verse 20. After they ate it, was this the third cup in their celebration? We're not told. He took the cup. This cup poured out for you is the new covenant. When I say covenant, think promise, think agreement, think contract. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Body given, blood poured out, sacrificial language here. So imagine celebrating an event etched into the hearts and minds of everyone around you, an event celebrated for centuries, and then someone stands up and says, this event is about me you would think, oh, he's got to be joking. Did he just say it was about him? But what if he insisted? This is what Jesus was doing. They were gathered to celebrate the freedom and deliverance of Israel out of Egyptian slavery, to celebrate that ancient meal of Passover. You see, the story of Israel's deliverance is about to find its fulfillment in the true Passover lamb in Jesus so for centuries, the Passover meals and, uh, and, and the, the sacrificed lambs, it foreshadowed what Jesus was about to accomplish through his death. In the New Testament authors understood this later on and spoke of Jesus as the Passover Lamb. Jesus is establishing something new, something beautiful, a new covenant new promise. I want you to think marriage covenant, a decisive once-for-all agreement. He's drawing from the prophets. He's drawing from Jeremiah, this promise of a new covenant where God even refers to himself as a husband, where Israel had had been unfaithful to him as a husband. And And he speaks of this covenant to come, this new covenant where the law would be written on our hearts. When is this going to happen? Jesus is saying, that covenant that the prophets were shouting about and that would come, I'm establishing it now. So it makes sense that Jesus was super excited about this meal. I will establish this covenant through my broken body, through my shed blood. Are you, are you, are you seeing that there is depth and a richness to what we do when we celebrate communion? The disciples don't fully grasp it yet liberation is coming, and it is to be celebrated. They would grasp it. Okay. Betrayal, celebration, fulfillment. Final point. Jesus says, basically, this is the way it's going down. You, you know what it's like to gather on holidays with family and friends and Things are going good, but sometimes you get some awkward dinnertime conversations, right? <laughs> we do. Or after dinner, you know, after we're all kind of loose, feeling the turkey or something. You know, just all of a sudden, you know, someone says something, and there can be some awkward moments in those conversations. This after dinnertime conversation is awkward, it's exhausting. Look, look with me, verses 21 through 23. Jesus says this, after just saying what he said about this new covenant, someone at this table will betray me. Uh. One of his closest companions. It shocks his disciples who begin to question one another. They start to suspect and have all this suspicion, suspicion growing in their hearts towards each other. Jesus is saying, I know how this is going down. Then, verses 24 through 30, somehow this argument breaks out about who's the greatest. Okay, wait. Jesus just talked about establishing a new covenant, broken body, shed blood, says someone's going to betray me, and somehow the conversation leads to who is the greatest great. Okay, all right. It's ugly, but it's revealing. It's painful to think this happened right after what Jesus said. It's sobering. But greatness needs to be reassessed, and it needs to be redefined in our own hearts. If it did for the disciples in that moment, it needs to be redefined and reassessed in our own hearts. And Jesus graciously comes alongside them, and he says, listen, the greatest is the one who becomes as the youngest and who serves In other words, he's saying, you guys are taking your cues from the wrong source. Look to, to my self-giving love. You're called to servant leadership. You're called to servant leadership. Local church, St. Pete, we are called to servant leadership. To follow after our King Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Oh, well, Jesus then goes on to commend them. He commends them for sticking with him in the midst of his trials, and even assigns them a role, a special role, in the kingdom to come. And after all that arguing, you're like, what? What?" I actually find a lot of comfort in that. Verse 29 and 30 he makes some stunning claims, and it's important we don't move on too quickly. They're daring, they're bold, they're audacious. But uh, he, listen, listen to what he says. My father assigned to me a kingdom. Verse thirty, this is my table. He talks about my kingdom. These are huge claims that Jesus is making. There's no question Jesus understood uh, that God was his father. There's no question that he understood this was his kingdom. You're going to sit at my table, this messianic banquet that is to come, this feast, this marriage supper of the Lamb, oh, that's my table, and you'll be joining me there. What? And then he talks about them sitting on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I I really believe this is about the authority given to the church. God's people are seated with Christ in heavenly places, Ephesians talks about, where a royal priesthood, 1 Peter, talks about. The 12 were given a special role, minus Judas, but he was replaced. Don't have time to get into that. Let's move on. Awkward dinnertime conversation continues. Verses 31 through 34, uh, Jesus says, Simon, oh, you're going to have a role, you're going to sit on a throne, but you're going to betray me. You're going to, no, deny me, rather. Judas betrayed him. You will deny me, Simon. And so he says, Simon, listen up. Simon, Simon, you will deny me. The Satan, the Satan, the deceiver, the accuser that I spoke of, he demanded to have you, to sift you like wheat, to shake you violently and cause you to fail. But here's what I did for you, Simon. I prayed for you. There's something there for us. Church, listen. Jesus, in response To Satan's request, prayed. And here's what happened He prayed. He prayed that your faith may not fail. That was his prayer. I prayed that your faith may not fail. What if, what if we started to pray that for each other? Wouldn't that be sweet? Learning from our our Savior, learning from the, the one who has gone before us. Let's start praying that our faith would not fail. That we'd stand strong. That when we do fail, uh, not a, a failure that leads uh, to complete rejection of the Lord Jesus, but when we do fail, that we would return and we'd repent. We'd own up to our sinfulness and receive forgiveness and celebrate that forgiveness. And then we would turn and, and help our brothers, help our sisters. And that's exactly what Jesus told Peter to do after he failed. He said, I want you to turn back, come back, strengthen your bros. And Peter's like, no, I'm going to go to jail. I would die for you. And then Jesus describes in painful, prophetic detail, actually, no, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. That's how this is going down. And then finally, this awkward conversation gets even more awkward, and he talks about the trouble that's ahead. It's about to get real, he says, basically, in verses 35 through 38. He says, I'm about to face the greatest trial of my life. They will hunt me down and treat me like a criminal, And all of that in order to fulfill the Scriptures. Specifically, the Scriptures of Isaiah. The suffering servant that Isaiah is saying would come. Specifically, Isaiah 53. Jesus quotes Isaiah 53, verse 12. I want to read a little bit of that. It says, He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, the sinners. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession... He's that mediator for the transgressors. All right, who is this suffering servant? Who is this one Isaiah spoke of? Jesus is saying, it's me. It's me. So sell your jacket and buy a sword. Get ready for trouble. This is symbolic imagery. Jesus doesn't want to create some militia and and, and go buck wild. And with the swords, and, and start stabbing people. That's not Jesus' intention, but they actually think uh, that's what he means, and they, all right, we got two swords, you know, uh, and he's like, all right, enough sword talk. <laughs> enough. They, they misunderstood him. So what, what do we have here? After the most important meal of Jesus' life, we have betrayal, opposition, argument, denial, And misunderstanding from close friends. What? So Jesus' suffering was spiritual and physical, but have you ever thought about how personal his suffering was? How lonely he was? A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. It was relational suffering as well. He would have to face what he described in the meal, that bread and cup, he would have to do it alone. And he felt abandoned. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he hung on the cross. All right, as we wind down, look with me in verse 19 again. Jesus says in verse 19, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is what? Given for you given for you this is about you how personal are you are you taking this how monumental is this meal to you jesus gave us a meal to remember he gave us a drama to reenact to share together Now, we call it communion, which is just a word that means sharing or participating, sharing in his death and in his risen life. But some traditions call it mass, which means meal or Eucharist, which means to give thanks or the Lord's Supper. We believe that this is a symbolic expression. It's also an act of obedience where when we partake, we are remembering, we are declaring, we are holding high what Jesus accomplished for us. And we're saying, what you did was sufficient It was enough. We're proclaiming your death until you return. As we drink this this cup, we're saying, this is the cup of the new covenant poured out, your blood. And it was sufficient. You established for us what the prophet said would happen and now have happened in you. And now we've entered into this new agreement, this new marriage relationship, this new covenant with the living God. What is he accomplishing? Salvation, deliverance, liberation, freedom. He takes a meal that was all about freedom and deliverance and helps us to see the true freedom and deliverance that he came to bring. Beautiful. Amazing. But the powers of evil still rage and deceive and attempt to trick us. And the Satan, well, he knows that he's defeated and he wants you to fail. But our rescue is certain, church. Listen, our deliverance is sure. Our freedom has been sealed. And this meal that we partake, this meal that we celebrate, is a sweet declaration of that fact. And so every time we celebrate this meal, we're recognizing the sufficiency of Jesus' death and we're celebrating that new covenant that he established. And we're remembering, we're remembering him. And not just in a way that says, I won't forget. But a remembering that looks like humble submission in awe and worshipful attentiveness. And an eagerness to respond to his love and sacrifice with love and sacrifice. Because Christ poured himself out. He held nothing back. And so... My question to us is, what has that produced in you? Has it produced in you what Jesus intended for it to produce? Well, what should it produce? Nothing short of humble submission and praise. Full participation and adoration. He loves you. If you hear anything today, hear this. God loves you and he has demonstrated that love most fully through Jesus who poured out his life to death so that you could be reconciled to the Father, so that you could know eternal life and experience the joy of relationship and covenant love here and now. Jesus, we remember what you've accomplished on our behalf, given for you, given for us, You did this for us, that we might be reconciled, that we might be restored into a right relationship, forgiven our sin, liberated, free. Help us to live as free men and women. Help us to live as if the chains have been released, as if the prison door has been opened. Help us to live that way because it's true. The prison cell of sin and shame, the chains of death, have been broken. The separation that was real and could be felt between us and you has been healed. And we thank you for that. Well, church, I want to close with a passage from Revelation chapter 5. And Revelation is filled with colorful imagery. We're going to read some things that sound a little weird to you. It's okay. Revelation is a beautiful book. It's different, but it's very colorful, and his images are meant to stick with us. It's a vision given to the apostle John. And he writes this in Revelation 5, verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb, a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went out and he looked and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. The lamb did this. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense. Uh, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song saying this, Worthy are you. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. It's where it's all headed, it's what Jesus accomplished. Ransoming a people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Here we are, 2020, city of St. Pete. A people for his own possession. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Oh, now it makes sense to call Jesus the lamb, the Passover lamb. Who was sacrificed for us. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the story we find, the meal that we participate in in Luke 22. Thank you for what was accomplished for us through the death of Jesus. Drive these truths deep into our hearts. Help us to be a people who know how to celebrate the freedom that has been won, the freedom that has been bought for us. We are liberated we delivered. Help us to celebrate as if that is truly the case. Because it is. We love you. We worship you. And we thank you for the way you have made a way to be reconciled to you. Amen. Amen.